14. It will help you to understand and appreciate God's word more fully. This is the Bible. You have one in the pew, and we suggest that you follow along. And we supply these because we as believers here at Flat Creek believe the Bible to be the word of God. And we're not alone. Millions upon millions across this globe and billions throughout history, I believe that. We believe that God speaks through the Bible. That it's not just an anthology of some legendary tales or wonderful narratives. We believe the Bible to be living and active because Jesus, we just sang about the resurrection, because Jesus is living and active. And the Bible is a book about Jesus. More than anyone else, the Bible is God's message about God's Son. It's a story that you will not find in any other ideology, any political structure, any other religion, anywhere in the world. You can't find it anywhere else. It is the story of free forgiveness, free grace that was not cheap, and new life in this Jesus. And this phrase that Peter will read here in just a moment talks about being born again. This phrase being born again is granted to those who have done nothing to deserve it. Whether you're listening this morning or here in the congregation, you have done nothing to deserve God's grace. And we could never achieve it. That's why one of the reasons why there's holiness in the gospel through the truth. I'm going to start this morning. Uh, I won't finish this morning, but we're going to start to focus on what we mean when we say the Bible is truth because there's great confusion today about truth. The Bible's not my truth, it's not your truth. It's God's truth. <coughs> and so we'll see that as we begin the journey through that this morning. And look at verse 22. I want to read through verse 25 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And he says, Peter writing to, the, to a, a group of persecuted believers, and we'll see that toward the end of the message this morning. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with, pure, with a pure heart. Having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God which, which lives and abides forever because, and he quotes from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. We'll look at that later on. All flesh is as grass, 
And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And he closes out this chapter. Of course, now he's not writing chapters. He's just writing a letter. But he, this break here for you and I between chapter 1 and 2 finishes with, Now this is the word of God which by the gospel was preached to you. So powerful, powerful verbiage. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, that you are the living word. And we thank you that your spirit has inspired for us what to read today as it inspired Peter 2,000 years ago how to write to a discouraged people. Save sinners this morning. We pray that you would sanctify believers through the word of God that was preached unto us. In Jesus' name we make this prayer. Amen. Now a quick review before we start moving along, but if you would, uh, first slide, uh, Mr. Logan. So we closed out last Sunday morning with five elements of what Peter is talking about here. We're going to see, uh, we'll begin here today, there are a couple of, uh, of uh, three lists that we'll look at, but primarily we want to move through this passage so that we spend some time in Isaiah chapter 40, because that is pivotal to understanding why Peter quoted from Isaiah 40. So he begins in verse 22 of this particular uh, passage saying, you, you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. In sincere love of the brethren, now, we talked last Sunday, we went into some detail about sincere love being agapeo, uh, agapeo love, yes, the divine love of God. And then he closes out that particular sentence by saying, love one another fervently with a pure heart. And here he is talking about the Philadelphia love, the familial love that we all have for family, we have for friends, and we should have for the church family because that's prompted by an infusion of the Spirit. Now, what does he mean when he talks about you've purified your souls to obey the faith? This, I'll give you five things briefly as we move on here. We closed out. Number one, when we obey the truth of Christ, we are, in verse 23, it talks about being born again. The word there is the phrase, or, or can be translated, regenerated. And that means to be born from above through the incorruptible seed of God's word. And he talks about that, writes about that in verse 23. Secondly, we obey the truth of Christ when we believe. In Romans 10, we read this last Sunday morning. We're not going to turn there this morning. But we are told that we are to obey the gospel. It is, it is a command, and this command goes, forward, goes forth to all sinners, all sinners, not just American sinners, but British sinners, African sinners, Australian sinners, Chinese sinners. The command is obey the gospel. And we obey it when we believe it. Every proclamation of the personal work of Jesus implies that the hearer should trust and obey. Thirdly, when we obey the truth of Christ, we accept as true 
the panorama of who Jesus is, as presented in the Word, not as interpolated by philosophers and sociologists and ad infinitum and ad nauseum, people that have tried to find out the true nature of Jesus. Well, the true nature of Jesus is given to us. All we need to do is spend some time to understand it. Jesus is God's appointed. Verses 20 and 21, Peter said, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So he's God's appointed before God laid the foundations of the world. That's indisputable. That's the word of God. It's not for discussion. Secondly, he's God's anointed. Back in verse 3, Peter said, and verse 3 is one of those pivotal verses in the entire book, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again, has borne us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's God's appointed and he's God's anointed. And we obey when our faith and hope rest in him. Fourthly, when we obey the truth of Christ, we're equipped to understand the authority of God's word. Many people question the authority of God's word because they've not obeyed truth Christ. Plain and simple. They've not been born again. They may have made a profession of faith, but there's been no change. We should believe the gospel because it summons a response. And no preacher worth his salt ever preaches without summoning a response from the congregation. When preachers put together the word of God for sermons or teaching, the word of God, the Holy Spirit, has summoned a response from the preacher. What are you going to do with the word? What are you going to tell him about Jesus? Well, the same thing applies to you folks here in the pews this morning. And that response is obedience, obeying the gospel. The good news. So the Spirit gives us with faith that passively saves. Now, next slide, if you would. There's a, a sidebar, if you please, that we finished last Sunday. But look at number five. When we obey the truth of Christ, what Peter wrote in verse 22 happens. We love one another further. Biblically, Love is both a feeling and a way of life. The gospel purifies our wayward hearts. And every person here this morning, every person watching, listening, has a wayward heart. A heart that is, the Bible says, far from God. It's not near to God. It's far from God. But God, the gospel purifies wayward hearts and it teaches us to love like the Trinity. That's why we are to preach the gospel to ourselves every day. So I ask you as we begin this morning, when's the last time you preached the gospel to yourself? Next slide. So as we focus this morning on holiness and the gospel through the truth, we talked last Sunday about learning what the Word of God means when it speaks of truth. 
And actually what Peter is using, or the phrase that Peter is using here, since you purified your souls in obeying the truth, that word obeying or the phrase for that is hyperhearing. You see, and I talked about this last Sunday morning, we have, all of us have selective hearing. Even our dog now has selective hearing. He comes when he knows, when he hears some rattling that there's food that, that uh, he can consume or water that he can drink. He is ready to come. But if I'm calling him to put him up because we've got someone coming to the house, not so much. And human beings do this. Now, Alistair Begg said this. Understand clearly, you are not put right with God because you're good. Not a soul here this morning is good, not intrinsically good like God. Why do you call me good, Jesus said. There's no one good but my father. So Beg is using that for the thought process. You're not put right with God because you're good. You will start to be good when you're put right with God. If you set your heart against God this morning, don't assume that there will be another morning when you'll have the opportunity to open your heart to him. He preached a sermon a number of years ago. I think he's been pastoring this particular church now for over 40 years. And he said, 35 years of pastoral ministry have convinced me that instead of the passage of time, as people listen to this story of hope, of forgiveness, instead of the passage of time softening them to the prospect of believing this truth, in my experience, and I can say that as a pastor as well, having been here for almost 28 years, in my experience, it has hardened them more than softened them. So that in actual fact, it becomes not easier to accept God's offer of forgiveness, but harder. You remember what God said to Saul on the road, on the road to Damascus when he was converted? He said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, God was basically affirming that the church that Saul was headed to destroy was his body. We can't persecute God, but we persecute him when we persecute the church. And then he said, Saul, it is hard for you to get kicked against the shins, against the pricks is the Old Testament word. In other words, if you don't accept my movement in your life today, there'll probably not be another time, Saul. And thankfully, Saul was converted. Now, Beck says this, Peter says it here in verse 23 when he talks about being born again. Next slide, if you would. And verse 23 reminds us that we, those of us that are believers, we have been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. 
the hope that is in the gospel. And we started 1 Peter chapter 1 by preaching about the hope that is in the gospel. The hope and love that is in the gospel requires new life. We can't dig deeply. We can't educate ourselves to become better. It requires a new life. And that new life is being born again. BA is just an acronym for born again. God has changed our hearts. He has caused us to be born anew. That's what verse 3 says. So that what is not natural, these things are not natural to us. So that is what not so what is not natural can be accomplished by the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit as he uses the word to convict our hearts of our sin and convince us of the need for a savior. That's supernatural. And it doesn't occur apart from the book. It requires the gospel of Jesus Christ that's found in Scripture alone. Meaning God does something to bring this message to mankind. And what he does is give us his word. He inspires his word from eternity. And, as Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, heaven and earth will pass away, <coughs> but my words will endure forever. So if you don't like the Bible now, you're not going to like it when you pass. The Westminster Confession of Faith, which is one of the great assemblies of defining what the Christian faith is, and also the Baptist faith and message. <clears throat> Baptists were smart enough to, to copy and paste most of the Westminster Confession of Faith so that we would understand what we believe. So I'm going to give you three articles from the Westminster Confession of Faith as it defines the Word of God. Next slide. Now, this has some old English in it, but that's okay. It's English. You should be able to understand it. And in article number one, and the very first article that the Westminster Divines began to define, and the very first article that Baptist uh, theologians began to define is the Word of God. Because we have to start somewhere, and we must start with his Word. So the first article, although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, the wisdom, and the power of God as to leave men inexcusable, no one here this morning is without excuse before God. Yet are they not sufficient to give the knowledge of God and of his will? which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore, it pleased God at sundry times and in diverse manners, that's a quote from Hebrews chapter 1, to reveal himself and to declare that his will unto his church and afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth, 
and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan. One of the first things that Satan does, and we'll look at it later on this morning, Matthew chapter 13, is he snatches the word from the soul through a number of different means. It can be distraction, it can be distortion, it can be a number of things. The malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy underwriting which make the Holy Scripture to be most necessary. Those former ways of God's revealing his will unto his people being now ceased. And that's talking about dreams. That's talking about theophanies, all these things that occurred in the Old Testament. They don't occur anymore. He's completed his work. Now, this is a lot of verbiage. Uh, it's interesting if you move from here and read our Constitution, you'll find, or the Declaration of Independence, you'll find that a lot of compound complex sentences. So this is the way men and women wrote two, three, four hundred years ago. Next slide. Article number seven. All things in Scripture are plain in themselves. But they're not clear unto all. And I must confess to you, there are portions of Scripture that I scratch my head about. In fact, we've been studying some of those in a Sunday school hour in the book of Ezekiel. Yet, those things that are necessary to be known, the things necessary to be believed and observed for salvation, are clearly propounded and opened in some place of Scripture or the other. That not only the learned, but the unlearned. In a due use of ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. The Word of God is plain and clear about salvation. Article number nine. Talk about interpretation of Scripture just briefly. The infallible rule of the interpretation of Scripture is Scripture itself. It's not our conscience. It's not some unbeliever. It's not some philosophy. It's the Scripture itself. And therefore, when there is a question about the true and full sense of any Scripture... must be searched and known by other places that speak more clearly. I'm using six commentaries as we're going through 1 Peter. What does that mean? It means that I trust and I select commentaries that from uh, individuals that are uh, orthodox in nature. We might use the word conservative, but orthodox. What the historical church has believed concerning the word of God. Now you can go off the deep end either on the right or the left so you must be careful and that must you, you have to learn these things. You have to be able to approach the word of God through its history 
through the passage of Scripture that you are reading and understand as we read these verses this morning, verses 22 through 25, we have to ask this question. How do these verses relate to chapter 1? How do these verses relate to chapters 2 through 5? How do these verses relate to 1 Peter? How do they relate to 2 Peter? How do they relate to the New Testament? How do they relate to the Old Testament? If in, at any time we attempt to interpret Scripture and avoid asking those questions, generally we'll get it wrong. There's unity in the Word. And Article number 10, the Supreme Judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, private spirits are to be examined. And whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit. Speaking in Scripture. So if you're here this morning and you do not know the Lord Jesus as Savior, you're not going to do a very good job of interpreting Scripture. If you're here this morning and you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, one of the things that you need to guard against is becoming arrogant about the interpretation and the application of Scripture. Now, this, there are ten, ten articles in this entire first opening to the Westminster Confession of Faith. The Baptist faith and message is a little simpler, but not much. So we say we're Baptist. What does that mean? It means we subscribe to this. And we subscribe to this because it glorifies the Word of God through Jesus Christ. So when Peter says you've been born again, this is some of what he's talking about. Next slide. Now the gospel, being born again, and I pray that I'm preaching to the majority of individuals hope I am, think I am, that know the Lord Jesus as Satan. But the gospel is not the beginning of our Christian walk. It's the hub from which many of life's questions can be solved by asking three questions. What action and what decision is consistent with the gospel? It's question one and two. What action... And what decision is consistent with what I'm reading? And is our response consistent with the revealed truth? For believers, when we read the Word of God, using the word gospel there as a, um, a synonym for the Word of God, what action and what decision is consistent with the gospel? Is the decision I'm going to make in line with what I understand the word to say? And when I respond with that decision, is it consistent with this book? And there are many things that we need to ask the question about. So in verse 22, he's teaching us to love one another. And basically, Peter says this. 
We need to seek the path that is always consistent with what the good news proclaims, what the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims. Now, I've said this a number of times, and I want you to, if you're listening, say amen. amen. If you're listening, say amen. amen. That's better. Here we go. Many, many people today want to take the Christian faith and lump it in with all the other faiths on earth. But it can't be done. It cannot. And the reason it can is because immediately when you start to read the Bible, the Bible, the, the Bible becomes exclusive. Well, all the others do too. No, they don't. Buddhism doesn't. Hinduism doesn't. Judaism doesn't. Now, Islam does, but the only reason it does is because it follows much of the Old Testament. So immediately, Christianity is excluded. It's not a religion, or not a religion in the world's understanding of what religion is. So religion declares, if I obey, God will love me. But that is not what Peter is saying. The gospel declares, because God loves me, I'll obey. How did he love me? He loved me by becoming incarnate in the flesh in Jesus Christ. And Jesus loved me, as the book of Romans says, even while we were still in our sins, he loved me and died for us. But he provided to us his ministry, the words that are contained in the four gospels. He then was injudiciously judged. He was found to be guilty of something that he could never be found guilty of, and then was sentenced to die by two judicial systems, the Roman system and the Jewish system, and then placed on the middle cross between two thieves in a horrid display of torture to shed his blood in order that we might be redeemed. And that's the gospel. Now, Paul went on to say he was buried. The reason he was buried is because he died. He didn't pass out. He died. He was buried, rose again the third day. The gospel declares because God loves me in this fashion, I will obey. And the tool that the Holy Spirit uses to accomplish this in our lives is the Bible. Nothing else. It's the Bible. The great theologian Jim Packer, who's been with the Lord now for probably four or five years, wrote this. The scriptures are the lifeline that God throws us in order to ensure that he and we stay connected while the rescue is in process. That's what's happening to us as believers. We're being rescued. We're being ransomed. Peter would use that word in the middle verses of this particular chapter. God throws us a lifeline to keep us connected. God does that through the scripture. 
to make us like him. Next slide. Now, when he uses the phrase born again in verse 23, of course, this is, we understand this from John chapter 3, when Jesus told Nicodemus, he said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. That's a phrase meaning to be born from above. It's not a natural birth. It's supernatural. Every person here this morning, born naturally from the earth. Hopefully every person here this morning has been born supernaturally from above. And the Bible uses the phrase regeneration. It's only found twice in the entire Bible. Jesus used it one, and Paul used it in writing to Titus. Turn with me to Titus chapter 3. Very similar language that he writes to the church at Ephesus. Look at verse 3. Titus 3, verse 3. For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us through the washing of regeneration, through the washing of being born again. Jesus told Nicodemus, you have to be born by the water and by the spirit. And the water tends to be emblematic of the word. By the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit that he poured out on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. We've been regenerated. We've been made anew. We have been begotten again, the phrase literally means. And so regeneration is that result of the immediate work of the Spirit of God when he comes in our souls. And notice what Paul says, for we ourselves were also once foolish. And he Gives a litany of sins. When the Spirit of God comes in, once we were dead to the things of God, but now we are made alive. And Peter confirms that in verse 3 of chapter 1. The Holy Spirit then gives us an affection for God that does not exist naturally. Oh, I love the creation of God. That's not the affection that he's talking about. He's talking about having the affection, having the love that he talked about in, verses, in verse 22 of chapter 1 that is both divine and familial so that we understand that we're born again supernaturally. We were not given the potential for change. We were changed. Not a person that claims to be born again was ever given the potential for change. If the Spirit of God 
borns us again, if he regenerates us, we have changed. It's not some gradual process. Catholicism teaches that, and certainly we're not Catholics. It is the result of the word moving in our souls to change dead hearts and so that deaf deaf ears may become hyper hearers of the word of God. Regeneration begins the Christian life. Sanctification extends it. Go back to 1 Peter now. Give you three things here quickly. How does God regenerate us? Well, Peter explains it here in uh, chapter 1. The first thing he does, verse 3, he regenerates us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. No resurrection, no chance of being born again. Jesus did not come to live a moralistic life and teach us a list of do's and don'ts in order that we could be better. That's not his purpose. We're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Secondly, verse 18, he says, God has ransomed us from the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. A lot of tradition. When we focused on that particular verse here uh, two or three weeks ago, I reminded you that we as Baptists are still traditionally oriented people. Tradition. But Peter said, that God ransomed us from the feudal ways of our forefathers. Which means that we, we are to trust the word and the word alone. Thirdly, verse 15, Peter says, He has called you, uh, uh, but as he uh, who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. So verse 15 says, God has called us, and then verse 23 says, through the living and abiding word of God. God is summoning you this morning if you do not know Jesus as your Savior. If you know Jesus as your Savior, God is still summoning you. It's important to understand that. We just don't come to church just to feel good about ourselves. We come to hear the message that God has in store for us because we have changed. Next slide. To be regenerated, to be born again, is solely the work of God. God gives us with faith. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. God gives us with faith alone, in Christ alone. Not in our forefathers. Not in our grannies, not in our pops. Not in our moms, our dads, our sisters, or brothers. He gifts us with faith alone in Christ alone. And once the Holy Spirit regenerates a believer, we are graced by God's imperishable uh, nature. And that's the focus of what he begins in verse 23, having been born again, not of corruptible, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever because, in just a moment we're going to go to Isaiah 40, all flesh is a grass, you and I. You've cut grass a lot this summer, have you not? Not so much last year. 
Why have we cut grass so much this summer? It's been nourished. It's been nourished by rain. A lot of water. Last summer, not so much. But all flesh is as grass. And all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, it dies, and the flower fades away and dies. But the word of the Lord endures forever. Three times in this chapter, the imperishable nature of the Lord is, and through his word and so forth, is named. Verses 3 through 4, according to his great mercy, he has begotten us again to a living hope, the resurrection of Jesus Christ to an inheritance that is imperishable. Jesus said in John 14, 19, because I live, you will live also. What a great promise and comfort. Secondly, verses 18 and 19, we've read those previously. There, Peter says, knowing that you were ransomed and not with something that was perishable, something that's going to fade away like silver and gold, but with something that is infinitely more precious, which is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his blood is the ransom that is paid for our life. And Peter contrasted couple of times here in first in uh, chapter one talking about the corruptible nature of silver and gold and in verse 23 which we've read you've been born again not of perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God next slide and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 40 <coughs> Now, I mentioned to you at the, at the outset of uh, beginning 1 Peter that when Peter quotes from the Old Testament, he quotes from the Septuagint, which we talked about that briefly, a big word, just simply means that it's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. <clears throat> In fact, the scrolls that Jesus read in the Gospels, except for the time that they were in Jerusalem, would have been Greek translations. So he read translations, and he trusted them. Oh, you can't trust all these English things. Oh, yes, you can. Yeah, you can. And there's a whole science given to that, which is the science of hermeneutics. But he quotes from Isaiah 40 in Verses 24 and 25. And Peter has said that the word of God has the same imperishability as the resurrection, in verse 3, as our ransom in verse 18. And now he talks about the seed of the word of God. Now Jesus, in Matthew 13, if we, if we have time, we'll go there this morning. If not, we'll pick up next Sunday morning. But in Matthew 13, Jesus taught the parable of the sower. A sower went forward to sow. And he sowed seed. And the seed is the word of God. In fact, Jesus explains it in the middle verses of Matthew 13. So what am I doing this morning? 
I'm just throwing out some seed. That's it. Seed from the Holy Spirit. That's all a preacher does. Well, he quotes from Isaiah 40. I want us to look at Isaiah 39 for a moment. Why is this found in the book of Isaiah? <clears throat> Verse 1. At that time, Merodach Baladin, the son of Baladin, the king of Babylon, sent letters and presents to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and he had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased with him, showed them the house of his treasures. So he sent uh, ambassadors, he sent emissaries to Hezekiah, who was king of Judah at this particular time, as Isaiah was writing. And so Hezekiah is feeling good about himself, and he does a very foolish thing. Because these individuals come in, and Hezekiah shows them the house of his treasures, the silver and the gold, the spices, precious ointment, and all of his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show him, which included the temple. Now, we don't see it here, but if you go to the books of 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles, what you find out is that when Babylon came in, when the Assyrians and the Babylonians came in, Babylonians came in to, uh, to Judah, one of the first things that they did was they ransacked the king's house and took all of the elements, the gold and silver, from the temple. So these guys have been invited into Hezekiah's palace and into the temple. And guess what they're doing? Hey, did you see that? How about this over here? What do you think that's made of? This man is wealthy. They did not forget the wealth of Judah. Now Isaiah sent by the Lord to Hezekiah. Verse 3, Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? In verse 4, What have they seen in your house? They have seen all that is in my house. Verse 5, Isaiah says to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers had accumulated unto this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Hezekiah said to Isaiah, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good, for he said, at least this will, there will be peace and truth in my days. So that closes out. Isaiah can basically be divided into two sections. The first 39 chapters, which ends here, which are contemporary prophecies of the judgment to Judah because of their national sin and idolatry. And then beginning in chapter 40, from chapter 40 through chapter 66, there are prophecies for the future rest restoration of Israel. 
And chapter 40 expresses the faithfulness of Yahweh. Y-H-W-H is just Yahweh, the covenant God, the covenant keeper of Israel. From verse 1 of chapter 39 through verse 8 of chapter 40, Isaiah cries at a time when men had gradually turned from God. Hezekiah was one of them. When they had closed their minds to him and their faith had grown cold. Does that sound familiar? Verse 1, chapter 40. Comfort ye. Comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all of her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert the highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. Does that sound familiar? It's one of the prophecies about John, John the Baptist. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The voice said, Cry out! And he said, Isaiah said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely. The people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. O Zion, you who bring good tidings, you who bring the gospel, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring the gospel. Lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say to the cities of Jerusalem, Behold your God. Chapter 40 begins, the second book of Isaiah, if you please. They are the prophecies of the future restoration of, the, of Israel and Judah. Isaiah cries to these people, and Peter quotes Isaiah 40 with an urgency to comfort a dispersed people, a discouraged people, a people that had been tested and tried, and they too had been tempted to forsake their faith. Does that sound familiar? The Bible is every bit as contemporary today as it was thousands of years ago. The seed of the word of God is imperishable. Hezekiah arrogantly displayed Israel's wealth to appease his Babylonian visitors. 
And Isaiah said, everything that you show them is just like grass. It's corruptible. But the word that I have prophesied to you, Hezekiah, will endure and last forever. And so Peter uses this phrase, uses this passage in the closing verses of chapter 1 to assure those that were hurting, those that had seen the mighty and the glorious pomp and circumstance and wealth of Rome. Remember now, he's writing from Rome. Peter had seen the wealth of Rome. Paul had seen the wealth of Rome. Many of these believers had seen the wealth of Rome, and they're saying, how will we ever survive against such opulence, against such wealth? Because Peter says, it's corrupt. Only the word of God endures forever. And Clowney's, Dr. Edmund Clowney, who actually spent his last years in Charlottesville, one of his commentaries that I'm using for Peter. He writes this. I'll close with this this morning. Peter compares the life-giving power of the Word of God to human procreation. It's the seed of life sown in our hearts to create new life. And God's Word is creative. God speaks and it's done. Hear the Word of the Lord. God speaks and it's done. He commands and it stands fast. By the word of the Lord, the psalmist said, where the heavens made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. Since God's word is his vocalized breath, it goes forth with the power of his spirit. The word of the gospel, the good tidings, is God's call. It communicates and it converts. Both Abraham and Sarah had laughed at God's impossible word of promise. Well, Sarah bare a child at the age of 90, and God had replied to Abraham, Is any word too difficult for God? When the angel promised to marry an even more miraculous birth, she did not laugh, but she did marvel. Gabriel repeated to her the word that had been spoken to Sarah, for no word is impossible with God. God's word of promise is self-fulfilling. By the word of God, Jesus was born of the Virgin Mary. By, word, by the word of God, we are born again. The people of God respond to the gospel call with the words of Mary's faith. May it be to me as you have said. The word of God that gives us new life is enduring. It is not subject to decay or change. God's eternal word creates 
eternal life. Let's pray. Father, in the closing moments of this opportunity we've had to worship you in spirit and in truth, we pray that as the Spirit has used the Word, the Word is always an anvil against which the hammers of our souls are broken. And so our prayer this morning is if there's anyone today that does not know the Lord Jesus as Savior, that what you command stands firm. And you command that we obey the good news of Jesus Christ. For believers, comfort, yes, comfort my people. What we hear, what we read, only reminds us that in our frailty, in our mortality, you and you alone are the same yesterday, today, and forever. Have your sweet will, your divine way in the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> We're going to sing one verse of a closing hymn this morning. And if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we can't save you. And that's good news. The only one that can save you is Jesus. And not only can he save you, but he will save you. And so we're going to sing a verse, if the Lord's spoken to you, the Spirit of God has spoken to you through his word this morning, that to exalt Jesus Christ. We encourage you to step out of your pew today, make your way to the front. We can take you to a private prayer room and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can leave here today with the assurance that Isaiah wrote to Judah. Comfort, yes, comfort my people. And he comforted the people with prophecy, with the word. You may be here this morning and the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, but perhaps you need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage you to make that as first step of obedience, by the way. So we encourage you to do that today. Or maybe join through statement of faith or transfer of letter. We encourage you to do that as a child of God. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. We need to be reminded every day of just how sinful we are, have been, but are now being sanctified in Jesus Christ every day. What number, brother? 300. 300. If the Lord's spoken, won't you come as we stand in the sun?